BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. July has been hot across the Northern Hemisphere, like extremely absurdly hot. Some climate scientists told the AP that, quote, this month's heat is likely the hottest Earth has been in about 120,000 years. 120,000 years. And we're likely headed for the hottest year on record. Can we definitively attribute this multi-continent event to climate change, or is it just a freak weather thing? We'll talk with reporters and scientists who've been covering the extreme heat. It's our latest installment of Climate Fix, our collaboration with our science team. It's all coming up next, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It's been hot here in California with temperatures in some parts of the state well over 110 degrees. Los Angeles Times reporter Haley Smith experienced this firsthand during a reporting trip to Death Valley where it was as hot as 128 with a low of 116. As part of our Climate Fix series with the KQED science team, we'll be looking at what we can do to understand and also to adapt to this extreme heat. California Governor Newsom set up efforts to educate the public about heat events. President Biden announced plans to help communities adapt. But is it enough? Joining us first, we've got Haley Smith from The Times. Welcome, Haley. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So I think my heat imagination kind of trails off once the temperature goes over 100. Like, sure, 110 is hotter than 105, but I don't have a sense for that, not having experienced it more than a few moments in my life. So you recently reported from Death Valley. How different does heat feel at, you know, 115 or 120? I think your line was that it feels like your eyeballs were boiling. <laughs> yes, among other things, you know, I grew up in Miami. I have lived in Los Angeles for a long time. So I thought I knew what heat feels like. But this 
was something completely different. Yes, it burned my eyeballs. It made car handles impossible to touch. It zapped my cell phone and camera within minutes. Honestly, I could only spend a few minutes in it at a time. And uh, some of the people I spoke with in Death Valley compared it to a blow dryer in the face or an open oven. I wrote in one of my stories that it kind of felt like someone had left the lights on in hell. Um, so, um, you know, it kind of it's the kind of heat that really shocks your system and it makes you instantly nauseous and feeling, you know, weak and unwell. And so I think for me, as a reporter who often covers climate disasters, it was a wake up call about how dangerous and also just how insidious extreme heat is, Mm. because you can't see it and you can't really run from it. And and that's why it's known as a silent killer. Did you notice that, you know, at 115 or 120 or 120, there like there was some level where you were like, okay, a human body is not meant to be in this temperature? Absolutely. I think when I felt that most acutely was when it was 10 o'clock at night, pitch black outside and 116 degrees. Your body sort of intuitively knows that, hey, this isn't right. You're not getting that opportunity for relief, that chance to cool down that typically comes with with night times. Um, So, yeah, it just sort of feels inherently Mm -hmm. wrong. Well, and you also had an encounter while you were out reporting. Mm-hmm. You ran into a hiker uh, named Steve Curry. Can you tell us about like what, what, how did you meet him and then what happened to him? Sure. So um, it was around 10 o'clock one morning and I wanted to find a few more people to interview in the park. So my photographer and I went to this lookout area in Death Valley called Zabriskie Point. And that's where we met Steve. Um, Francine, my photographer, sort of saw him scrambling up this canyon. And by the time he reached the point, he had scrunched himself beneath this metal informational sign because it was the only spot of shade in the park. And he told us he was 71. He was from Los Angeles. His name, as you said, was Steve Curry. And the Park Service advises people not to hike after 10 a.m. And it was 10 a.m. at that point, and he was only about halfway done with his hike. So we told him that, and we told him we were worried about him. And did he want water? Did he want a ride? I asked if he just wanted to sit in my car in the air conditioning for 10 minutes. Um, But he was persistent and he said he was an experienced hiker who had had extensive outdoors training. He was preparing for another hike in August. So what we now know is that Steve did finish his hike, but just barely. Uh, He collapsed outside of the bathrooms in Golden Canyon around 3.30 that afternoon Mm. and he died. And, you know, we don't we don't have the official cause of death yet. But of course, um, park officials say they believe it's heat related. And it's just a tragic situation all around. Uh, We, of course, spoke with his family, his lovely wife and wrote an obituary for Steve and, and tried to honor him as best as we could. But I do fear that while he might be the first person I have interviewed to succumb to extreme heat, he he won't be the last. Man, so tough to meet meet someone and then realize, you know, mm-hmm. could I could we have stopped him? You know, all of those things right. are so so tough. Um, I want to bring in Jeff Goodell here. He's the author of "The Heat Will Kill You First: Life and Death on a Scorched Planet." Also, the author of "Big Coal and the Water Will Come." Welcome, Jeff. Hi, thanks for having me. 
So, you know, your new book includes a story that has some parallels to the Steve Curry story, and it's about a Bay Area couple who moved up to the Sierras, Jonathan Garish and, and Ellen Chung. And, you know, a lot of people followed this story in the Bay Area. Can you kind of remind us of, of what happened to them? Sure. Um, they were living in the Bay Area during the pandemic, and um, they wanted to start a family, start a new life. And uh, they decided to move up to the Sierra Nevada foothills just outside of uh, Yosemite near Mariposa. And uh, they had a started a family. They had a one-year-old daughter. Um, and they they were, you know, young, and they were in their 30s and I think she was in her late 30s and he was in her early 40s. They were um, building this new life uh, in Mariposa and um, like to explore the outdoors. And one day um, in the summer of 2021, um, they went for a hike and they knew they had talked uh, with people about the heat. They had been warned about the heat. They were experienced hikers. They they seemed very aware of it. They got up early, went out at 7.30 in the morning, hike down to uh, the Merced River, about a three-mile hike, spent some time there, and then started about a two-mile hike up out of the Merced River towards where their car was parked. And they didn't come home at the end of the day. And the next mm -hmm. day, people were worried, and they sent out a search party, and they found the entire family, the um, including the one-year-old daughter and their dog, um, dead on the trail mm. and um you know it was it took a while for people to believe that this was heat related they thought at first there was some foul play or something but no it really was heat related because um you know they were climbing up this steep shadeless mountainside at when the temperature was 105 degrees and um had nowhere to go yeah you know, runners may also remember Philip Krejcik, who was really an elite runner, ultra marathoner, way better runner than I'll ever be. And he died in Pleasanton after having these heat related problems that kind of disoriented him. And, you know, Jeff, one of the things that that story really made me realize, because he ended up getting very close to you know, getting out but got disoriented, is even if you're trained, even if you know and or think you know how to run in heat, sometimes it may hit you in unpredictable ways, right? I mean, that seems to be one of the lessons of, of these stories. Yeah, you know, I think people don't get, and I, in fact, didn't get until I had, you know, a experience walking down just downtown in Phoenix one day when it was 115 degrees, how quickly heat can overcome you and how dangerous it is. And and what often happens is, as you're mentioning here, and I think happened um uh, to the family on the hike in Mariposa is they, you get disoriented and, you know, you, you start to get lightheaded and you start sometimes getting hallucinogenic and you start making bad decisions, mm -hmm. um, which can exacerbate the, um, the, the predicament that you're in, like the family on the trail, they found their key fob to their, to their, uh, pickup truck, like several hundred feet down below the trail from them, which they had apparently dropped. So, in their confusion and so even if they would have gotten up to their truck um they wouldn't have been able to get in um and so, so you know it's 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 a very um it happens both fast and slow right it, it hits you fast and then you get disoriented you make bad decisions and you get into more and more trouble yeah 
We're talking about extreme heat. We're talking about heat domes, heat wave. We're joined by Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, as well as Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather for the Los Angeles Times. This is part of our series, Climate Fix, with our KQED science team. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, have you coped with extremely hot weather? Do you have an extreme heat plan, particularly if you live in one of the areas in our listening range that gets really, really hot? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And you can find us on Twitter, on threads, on Instagram. We're KQED Forum. You know, Jeff, humans... Many humans, some humans, have more options for cooling off. And these heat waves hit this kind of more-than-human world harder. And your book really begins with the description of the toll from the 2021 heat wave up in the Pacific Northwest. And we did a show at that time, and one of the facts that stayed with me is that a billion sea animals basically boiled in the ocean because it was so hot. Why did you start with that heat wave? And why, you know, what does it say about how the non-human world can adapt? Yeah, I started with that heat wave because I really wanted to underscore um, the fact that, you know, one of the big lessons that I learned in this book and that I really want to communicate is that the climate that we all grew up in, the temperature ranges that we expected, that we're comfortable with, are 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 gone now. We've because of the burning of fossil fuels and the and the loading of the atmosphere with CO2, we're kind of creating a new climate where these kinds of extremes um, can happen in places and in times that we don't expect. And the Pacific Northwest heat wave was a great example of that. You know, that was a about as likely as, you know, snow in the Sahara um, to have, you know, 121 degrees Fahrenheit in British Columbia, uh, which is, you know, a kind of cool and um, often rainy place. You know, there's mm-hmm. rainforest there. And, and so I really wanted to capture these sort of unexpectedness of this and mm. and in places like that um you know it's not just like i'm in austin texas right now we're sort of used to heat and it's brutal here and it has its own dangers but up there nobody had air conditioning nobody was prepared for it nobody understood like what to do what the risk factors were how to mm. handle it so i really wanted to underscore that yeah We're going to talk more about that particular event and the one that we're undergoing now. We are talking about extreme heat here on the show this morning with Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, and Haley Smith, the reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times. We're going to get to your calls and comments uh, after the break. I mean, have you experienced heat above 120 degrees. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about extreme heat this morning on a warming planet. We're joined by Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times, and Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, uh, longtime writer for Rolling Stone, and also author of Big Coal and the Water Will Come. I want to add another voice to our conversation. Karen McKinnon is an assistant professor at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability who really studies large-scale climate variability and change with a focus on you know, high-impact weather events like some of these we've been talking about here. Welcome to the show, Professor McKinnon. Thank you so much for having me. So... I, you know, you're a climate scientist who studies these types of events, and I wanted to get into some of the particulars about these heat events. Like, are we experiencing these things just because the temperature of the Earth, uh, and particularly the land masses, are just warmer, like the whole distribution of temperatures is going up, and that's just happening as we have these standard weather uh, cycles? Or is there something that's more complex going on, like an actual increasing number of extreme events per se? Yeah, that's a great question and excellent framing. So what we know very, very well as climate scientists is that everything is getting warmer um, as we emit more CO2 into the atmosphere. Um, And it's actually getting warmer a lot if you think about, for instance, over land uh, and also maybe in degrees Fahrenheit rather than, than Celsius, which is often what we talk about as scientists. So you know, you might think, okay, the globe's warmed about 1.2 degrees Celsius. How much is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, that sounds like a small number. Um, but actually, land warms more than ocean, and most of us live on the land. Um, and also, if you kind of think in Fahrenheit, like many of us do in the United States, that's actually um, three and a half degrees Fahrenheit warming that we can just say mm-hmm. is pretty clearly due to, you know, emissions of CO2. Um, so that means that, you know, that kind of climate change signal that's very well understood that's going to make all your heat waves hotter. That's going to make all your heat waves longer. Um, and I think the longer part is really important. You know, if you look at your weather forecast and see that there's going to be a string of days that are, you know, 86 degrees as their high, for example, um, versus a string of days that are 90 degrees as their high. You know, I think that actually feels quite different. You know, it could be 100 versus 104 if you want to go to these higher temperatures. But um, again, you know, this kind of very, very well understood climate change signal is actually pretty substantial when you think about these high summertime temperatures. Mm-hmm. So that's the part that we know really well. So in your words, which are also the ones I like to use, the whole distribution. I have watched just... some of your talks, I will say. <laughs> um... <laughs> Everything is just shifting towards warmer temperatures. And we understand that super well. Um And then on top of that, you know, what are we seeing right now? We're seeing a weather pattern that's causing heat waves in multiple locations around the world. Um, And these weather patterns are really like the most direct cause of heat waves. So, you know, a weather pattern comes through, you have a high pressure, you have a lot of, you know, sunny conditions that causes the heat wave. Um, And what we now have is that these weather patterns are happening again on top of that mean warming. And so, 
uh, you know, you're, you're basically saying a heat wave that would already be pretty hot because of the weather is going to be, say, three and a half or four degrees Fahrenheit, even hotter mm -hmm. due to climate change. Um, and then a lot of people are interested in this important question of is that weather pattern also changing? Um, and that's where we're kind of getting actually the cutting edge science. And I can't give you a, a great answer because we just don't know yet. Well, yeah. Um, like, and just to, just to pick up on that, I mean, there's this idea of the quote heat dome, which I feel like I hadn't heard about until about the time I heard the term bomb cyclone. These are things <laughs> that like are in the last five years now are just like in the lexicon in a way that they weren't before. And I'm like, is this a Chilean sea bass rebranding of an existing phenomenon or are people like yourselves going like, yes, this is in fact a new phenomenon and not just a new way to describe something that has happened here in California for a long time? Yeah, so the term heat dome is not, um, I agree it's in the media much more, but like uh, a heat dome is just kind of like, you know, it's describing a weather phenomena that leads to heat waves. So I think with heat in particular, and I think this is a good thing to be clear, we're talking about it a lot more in the media. And that means that these terms that maybe didn't come up that much before are coming up a lot more. Um, but that doesn't mean that like the weather pattern that causes heat waves is something that is new. This is something mm -hmm. that's relatively well understood, but we are certainly talking about it more in the media. Yeah. We, I, I want to come back to the Pacific Northwest uh, event because it was so incredibly unlikely, but we have some really pretty incredible calls on the line here. So I'm, let's go there and then we're, we're going to return to some of the science here with our, with our full panel. Um, Joe in Seaside, welcome. Hey, how's it going, Alexis? Huge fan. Oh, thanks for calling. Absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Tell us your story. So, yeah. So I uh, work for the state of California. I uh, do inspections of facilities where uh, vulnerable populations, uh, you know, require care and supervision. Mm. I was briefly covering uh, the Coachella Valley and Palm Springs area. Oh, yeah. I'm born and raised in Seaside, California, so I'm used to that close coastal climate of you know, anywhere from 57 to 71 at best. 57 to 62. Um, and, Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Uh, and I was covering Palm Springs and uh, Coachella for a brief period of time and had my air conditioner on as I was driving up midsummer. I got out of the car and looked and it was 100. It was registering 121 degrees. I had to have only been out maybe for about four or five minutes walking into the facility and immediately my body began to react. I actually ended up having heat poisoning, which I'd never heard of before. Um, I had to go in and get electrolytes. I, my blood pressure was skyrocketing. Luckily, I was only, like I said, I, I kind of felt it within my own body and called management and was like, hey, I can't do this. I got to head back. I got to head home. Uh, luckily, I stopped by my physicians. They filled me up with some electrolytes and sent me on my way. I wasn't allowed out in the field for two weeks because of the heat wave, but uh, I'm just learning that about myself, that I my body wow. just really react very poorly to the rise in temperature. So we're talking like 10, we're talking you're out there for like 10 minutes. It had to have been less than 10 minutes. I went in, uh, you know, gathered my belongings. I, I kind of travel with an office, so I usually have yeah. two briefcases with me and uh, headed into the facility, got into the facility and immediately went to the restroom, excuse me, TMI. Yeah. And I had to vomit, and then I was shaking. Wow. And when I called my physician, they said, well, where are you? And they said, you know, you need to w watch out for the rise in temperature. And I'd never really experienced that to that degree because I grew up on the coast. Uh, but, yeah, I, I 
got heat poisoning, and I never wow. had even heard about that. I mean, I know you must take precautions when you're in extreme heat, but I just, my Difference, body was yeah. like, hey, you know, let's get out of here. <laughs> Difference between that and really feeling it. Hey, Joe, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for calling, and thanks for, you know, listening over time. Absolutely. Really, really my pleasure. It. Take care. Great show. Thank you so much. Um, hey, Jeff. I assume this is the kind of story that sort of inspired you to write this book, actually. Yeah, sort of is. I mean, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I, you know, used to this sort of wonderful Mediterranean climate there, you know, um, used to surf at Santa Cruz and hike in the Sierras. And, you know, I, 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 I but I never really you know, knew much about extreme heat. And I moved to the East Coast and, and lived in New York for a while. And I was co covering climate change for a decade and I obviously climate change has a lot to, you know, global warming, well, you know, heat is a thing in climate change, but it never occurred to me to think about what it meant for like me physically and my own body and what, and how dangerous it could be until I was in Phoenix on a day when it was about 115 degrees and I was staying downtown and uh, I had to walk to a meeting about 12 blocks away. And, you know, by the time I got to the meeting, I was dizzy. My heart was pounding, you know, mm -hmm. because it's a city. It's much hotter, actually, in the city. It might have been 140 or something where I was walking. And, you know, I, I mean, obviously, I, I could have jumped into a building or something that was air conditioned. And, like, I was, I was, I was not going to die literally on the street. Mm -hmm. But I really understood in that moment how quickly heat can impact you and how dangerous it could be. And if I had to walk another 12 blocks, I don't know if I, you know, mm. could have made it. And that's really where the book was born for me. Yeah. Another listener uh, writes in to say, I have learned that I overheat faster than a lot of people. When I've been out hiking with others, I start feeling overheated and nauseous sooner than others. It's important to know your own body and not let other people bully you into doing more than you're capable of just because they aren't suffering from the heat. That's a good sort of psychological physical tip um one, one more call chris in uh santa rosa welcome hey good morning um so i was deployed to southern iraq in 2011 and uh during the summertime there i routinely experienced temperatures of 125 and on bad days upward so i've uh mm. i've lived it <laughs> for a yeah. period of time and long enough to know that I think we we as comfortable Americans in temperate climates are probably wildly unprepared for the realities of a warmer planet. It's easy to get comfortable when it's all you know. Um, I, every day when I woke up and you know went out to start getting my vehicles ready, it was like opening an oven door. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just it was just unreal. And what really shook me is uh, one day we noticed underneath the overhangs off a building, there were a number of birds that had died. Mm. They had just fallen from their perches. It was it was too too hot for the local population to even survive. Um, yeah. And I didn't know that could happen. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Me neither. Um, Chris, hey, thank you so much for, for sharing that. I mean, I do think there is there's an element of this and, and Haley, I'm going to come to you on this. There's an element of this where, and we've heard it from, from multiple people. There's the abstract knowledge basically of, wow, it's extremely hot outside. 120 degrees is very hot. And then there's people's actual bodily experience of, of being out 
in it. As you were, were talking to people out there in, in Death Valley, did you get the sense that people were having their perceptions of heat changed by just, you know, experiencing it in their own body, Haley? Hmm. That's an interesting question because you have to think about what kind of people want to go to Death Valley when it's dealing with record-breaking temperatures mm. or potentially record-breaking temperatures. I think that a lot of the people I spoke with were kind of heat-seeking tourists looking for the the novelty of this. Is that a thing? I did not even realize that was a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it apparently it is. I learned that as well and I think that a number of people I spoke with were like we kind of just wanted to feel what this feels like. Um you know, so it, it was an interesting experience. It's not something I would personally <laughs> choose to do on my vacation, but I think that it's still sort of new and novel, um, but that probably won't be the case for much longer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, there's also this problem, uh, Karen McKinnon, of kind of attribution of major weather events to, you know, climate change. And it's something that scientists and journalists have really struggled to to figure out exactly how to talk about it, exactly how to do this attribution. Um, Karen McKinnon, from your perspective, where where are we with that? Like this particular um, uh, heat event that's happening in the Northern Hemisphere right now, how should we talk about attributing that to global warming? Yeah, this is a great question and, and a case where kind of, you know, it's important to think about how to talk about it in a nuanced way. So, you know, that, that part that I discussed before about how everything is getting warmer and how land warms more than the global average, this is all something that's you know pretty easily attributed to human activities, increased CO2 in the atmosphere. Um, but the, the weather on top of that, so the specific weather pattern that we're seeing right now, that's a lot less clear if that specific pattern is attributable. Hmm. Um, however, even if we don't know for sure if this specific pattern is more likely due to climate change, we do know that the heat caused by this pattern is hotter than it would be otherwise because of climate change. And so that's why we can pretty confidently say, you know, almost without doing too much work for almost any heat wave, mm -hmm. that it's it's hotter due to climate change. And, you know, what that means, you know, I think it's really interesting to hear these perspectives on how that manifests physically, um, because, you know, that means that when you, you know, have these temperatures that would already be hot because of the weather, you know, you're pushing them even hotter. And that means that we're, you know, going to see more record-breaking events. We're going to see events that are record-breaking by large margins, like what was seen in the Pacific Northwest in 2021. Mm -hmm. um, and just basically pushing that that upper hot edge even hotter is, is very clearly due to climate change. Well, you know, returning, you walk me right back into it. I mean, the that event in the Pacific Northwest, right, was like so far outside of what could have or would have been predicted from our past data that we have access to, even going back um, qu quite far in these various kind of proxy data ways. So I'm curious if you think the presence of these events or, you know, smashing records by large margins is making us rethink whether our models are actually capturing what's important about this changing climate. Yeah, so this is a great question that is very close to, to my research. And, you know, we actually even wrote a paper on the 21, 2021 Pacific Northwest heat wave to try to answer this question. Um, and I want to say two things that might seem contradictory, but I, I want to make them clear how they're not. So what we're seeing so far 
we have not seen clear evidence that this is actually outside what our climate models have predicted. Mm. We're more feeling, again, we're feeling things manifest. We're seeing what those additional degrees mm. feel like when you put them on top of already hot events. Um, and for the Pacific Northwest heat wave in particular, um, you know, no matter what, it was going to be un- probably an unusual event. I mean, it was just hugely record breaking. It's unlikely to be something that is going to happen you know, regularly in the past or in the future. Um, So we looked in the climate model and basically said, uh, you know, yes, the climate model can actually produce events like this. They're very, very unlikely. Um, But we do see that that we can get them just because there's a lot of variability and kind of, you know, unpredictableness in weather itself. And then again, you add the climate change signal on top of that. Um, But I do want to emphasize that we also need to remain humble. So I was finishing up that paper about the Pacific Northwest heat wave in the summer of 2022, which seemed, again, to be quite hot with a number of record-breaking events. And so we actually added a kind of a caveat in that paper that said, if we do keep seeing events again and again that are due to, that kind of look like this very extreme event, we need to rethink these conclusions. Um, and, you know, so I, I just want to emphasize that we we need to stay humble because climate change is happening quickly. Um, you know, a lot of things have behaved kind of linearly-ish so far, but there's a lot of non-linearities in the climate system. Um, and it can be hard to, I think it's actually going to be hard to know for sure if things are going in an unexpected way mm. <laughs> until it's kind of already happened, unfortunately. Um, so, you know, we, myself and other folks are kind of trying to keep up with studying these heat waves, trying to understand, okay, you know, now that we've had maybe three years of extreme heat, does that suggest that something is different from what we expect? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason it's hard is that in the mid-latitudes where we live, there just is a lot of variability in the weather. So we have, you know, take out climate change. We just sometimes have years that are really hot, sometimes years that mm-hmm. are really cold. Um, And so the reason it's hard to kind of pull out the signal in terms of these weather events is there's just, if you will, there's a lot of noise. Um, And so that, you know, average climate warming is very, very clear. But I I think it's going to take us still a, a number of years to understand are these weather patterns really different from what we expect to see? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of our listeners, John, writes in to say, I'm an avid hiker. I've hiked practically every trail in the Bay Area. But when I hear of people going out and hiking when it's going to be 100 degrees or even 90, I think they're nuts. Uh, John, I'm one of those people who likes the the hot hike. But honestly, uh, my, my habits are changing um, as a result of some of these things that I've uh, heard about over the last uh, few years. We're talking about extreme heat. We're talking about heat domes. Uh, we're talking about the changing climate. The guests here are Catherine McKin- Karen McKinnon, excuse me, assistant professor at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, who studies large-scale climate variability and change with a focus on these high-impact weather events. We're also joined by Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, and Haley Smith, a reporter focusing on extreme weather for the Los Angeles Times. This is our collaboration with the KQED science team, Climate Fix, and we're taking your phone calls about you know, dealing with extremely, extremely hot weather. The number is 866-733-6786. Might be hard to get through, so forum at kqed.org is the email address. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about extreme heat on uh, a world that is getting warmer. We're joined by Haley Smith, the reporter focusing on extreme weather with Los Angeles Times. Jeff Cadell, author of the book, The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet, bestseller right now. Uh, Karen McKinnon, assistant professor at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. And I want to add our own Danielle Venton, science reporter here at KQED. Welcome. Hi, Alexis. So we have a a question um, from a listener who wants to know, I'm interested in knowing what unhoused people are doing during these heat waves. Is anyone looking into what unhoused people are doing or not able to do um, during heat waves? And I know that, you know, there have been recent efforts to, to ensure that people are safe. Yeah, you know, the city of San Francisco recently came out with a report looking at heat in the city. San Francisco has some unique difficulties um, because of how it's been built and how old some of our buildings are. Um, And definitely unsheltered people are some of the most vulnerable to these really to these really hot days. Um, And the unsheltered population is kind of centered generally in San Francisco Mm -hmm. in neighborhoods that have a lot of concrete and asphalt. And this this interesting report really broke out these how these Different districts that have a lot of a lot of pavement mm-hmm. um, are so much hotter from some of these other neighborhoods that have more green spaces, trees, shade. So the city is looking into strategies to uh, try to help the population cope with these really hot events. That looks like cooling centers, uh, groups being given air filters. Mm-hmm. air conditioners, um, planting more trees. Um, there's still a long way to go, though. Yeah. And, of course, that's San Francisco, right? If we start thinking about all the cities as we kind of go east, you know, all the way, you know, through the Bay Area up to up to Sacramento, it just gets hotter and hotter, right? Are there other sort of, uh, you know, statewide initiatives or anything that, that are intended to address, you know, maybe not just specifically unhoused people, but, but the kind of um, the whole range of socioeconomic um, you know, statuses and people's ability to sort of access relief from the heat. Yeah, although I would I would point out that according to federal data, San Francisco has the lowest um, the lowest rate of like of um, air conditioners. Uh, right, right, <laughs> so right. Because right. you know we're accustomed to having this lovely fog that keeps things cool. Um, there is there is IRA money. Um, Mm-hmm. for for greening spaces and you know looking at how we can adapt to heat mm-hmm. um there's some money that cal fire has also for tree planting programs mm-hmm. um 
you know, and, and much more attention is going to need to be given to this area. Yeah. Haley Smith, how about, you know, as we go up all the way even to the national level and, and President Biden, like what, what are the efforts that you're kind of tracking to help us adapt here? I mean, I think this this current ongoing extreme heat event that we're experiencing here in the Southwest has really shined a spotlight on a number of policy questions, um, including issues like worker protections and also important questions around our energy grids. And so many people are really relying on air conditioning to survive. So last week, uh, the president did announce some plans to step up enforcement of heat safety measures for outdoor workers and people exposed to high temperatures. He also talked about some investments in better weather forecasting and climate resilience projects in California and other Western states. Um, But I think some of the criticism that I have seen or, or the frustration around these announcements is that so much of these efforts are really aimed at at the symptoms and not the disease, mm-hmm. meaning the focus is on adaptation and not actually limiting greenhouse gas emissions or mitigating our reliance on fossil fuels or any of the activities that we do that are driving up these higher temperatures in the first place. Um, and I think there's an argument to be made that pretty much every policy now needs to be revisited through the lens of extreme heat. So that would include schools and labor and transit and so many other sectors, um, because as Karen has touched on, the, the long term trends here are really only going in one direction, and that is hotter and hotter. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's interesting because we did go through a period in, in this country's history where, you know, air pollution and water pollution began to be pushed through the whole, you know, federal apparatus and, and understood and um, and in a lot of cases mitigated quite effectively, particularly, you know, air pollution, uh, thinking about it in, in Los Angeles and in other places. But yeah. Jeff, you, Jeff Goodell, you feel like, uh, and this is the case, that this is going to be different. Even if we start pushing through uh, climate policies, it's not going to make the heat go away. Yeah, I think it's going to be different for two reasons. One is that, you know, CO2 is very different than air pollution, uh, traditional air pollutants. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area and I remember when it was smoggy and I couldn't see the Oakland Hills and things. And then, you know, catalytic converters came along and, and, industrial scrubbers on uh on, on industrial um uh facilities and we cleaned up the air and it went away and it's better and much better co2 is not like that um these temperatures are going to keep rising as long as we keep emitting co2 into the atmosphere and then you know this the co2 stays in the atmosphere for thousands of years so we're mm-hmm. essentially creating a, a new climate but the other thing that's very different is back in the 70s and 80s when we took care of air pollution and passed the Clean Air Act and did all these sorts of things, we had two political parties in America that more or less believed in science. Um, we don't have that anymore. We have you know, a political party that thinks of climate change as a system of beliefs and that is some sort of elite conspiracy theory um, that is about, you know, uh, um, with, you know, holding people down and, you know, um, you know, uh, quashing down the American economy or whatever. So the the political discussion and the political possibilities are it's a much different dynamic now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah, it's it's wild to look back at the environmental legislation Richard Nixon signed and yeah, think about how right. how much the country has really changed, yeah. Um Yeah, let's... Republicans the, the Republicans were the you know, they are responsible for the Clean Air Act and many other things, right? Yeah. 
Um, let's bring in Art in Sacramento. Hi, uh, thanks for having this program, Alexis, and um, thank you for taking my call. I'm a former migrant farm worker and I worked there as a child in a large family. I remember thinking, you know, it's all about the timing when you're out in the day, early and get out early. So get in early, do the work early, and get out early. There's a lot to learn from people who've been dealing with this for a long time, and that would be people who are not going to stop working, not going to stop laboring to bring us food and get paid Mm -hmm. for it. And there's a lot to learn from migrant farm workers, I believe. And, you know, it's knowledge tends to go like, well, we research them and then we figure out what's important and we tell them about it. But I think in this case, a lot of researchers would do well to just pay attention to what's already happening on the ground. Because then the thing I I wonder about is, you know, uh, how do we get houses that are built to withstand what's coming? And what I mean is those extremes. And I know people are thinking about this because I'm looking at it, the hottest places on earth. Like, how do we do that? How do we and how do we get people's attention that, like, my my road where I live in Sacramento flooded for the first time in 22 years last year. Um, I've never had that happen before. And I know it. it's just a signal it's coming. And in 117, I didn't have air conditioning until this a week ago mm-hmm. for the last 10 years. Um, because now I now have solar panels and now I can afford it. And the cost of HVAC, uh, heating and um, ventilation, mm-hmm. ACs, is so exorbitant that people with lower wage, I mean, I'm, I'm a registered nurse, public health nurse, I, I, I can afford these things. I can, But I can imagine how many people around us cannot. And I'm like, there's a big issue around this. And um, yeah. it's it's important for us to think about that as a society because, um, yeah, and it, I don't know. Just, no, all right. I mean, these are, I mean, these are two great points. I mean, one, just the, the sort of uh, knowledge and lived experience of, of farm workers who've been working in this heat in the Central Valley uh, you know, really for, for generations. And then also, you know, the accessibility of cooling, you know, which is assumed for, for many people, you know, assume, of course, well, if I needed to, I could have air conditioning, I could have access to cooling, but there's a lot of people who, who cannot. And I, I really, um, I take both of your points, uh, really deeply. Thank you so much, um, Art. I wanted, um, I'm going to split your questions uh, here. You know, Danielle, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about um, these efforts to build cooling centers and to make, you know, just cooling available to people who may not otherwise be able to afford it. Yeah, so cooling centers can look like a couple of different things. Um, You know, one is set to open at Kizar Pavilion. These can be dedicated centers, but they also can be things like a library um, that's open and has water and clean air and, you know, cool cool places to hang out for people. Um, Cities all over the nation are, are exploring these, and they're, you know, they're effective, but like someone brought up, I mean, they're a stopgap. Um, they're, they're, they're treating the symptom and not the cause. But they're one of the best things that we know how to do right now. And then, you know, Karen McKinnon, um, I know that you're, I mean, you work on statistics and large-scale models, but at the UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability, are there people who are trying to go directly to uh, farm workers and people who have, you know, really intimate knowledge of working in this heat and, you know, not just trying to give them information, but trying to, you know, um, spread the knowledge that they already have. 
Um, I don't know for sure. I know at um, the UCLA Luskin Center, there's actually people focusing very much on extreme heat and how that's manifesting uh, both in LA and in California and how to adapt to it. Um, I can't specifically answer that question because I don't know, but I, I think that it's a really, really good point. So, you know, not at all to say that climate change is, is unimportant, but, you know, we as humans do live in a very wide variety of climates around mm-hmm. the world. Um, so even though it is important to, yeah. you know, reduce, eliminate and remove CO2, um, we there is a lot of knowledge, um, including the knowledge of farm workers that was mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think that it's it's a very, very good point that, you know, the science on this, it should not just be top down. That's not a sustainable or even necessarily effective model. Um, it very much should be bottom up and that comes through adaptation as yeah. well. You know, and Haley, I wanted to bring you in this as well. I mean, is there legislation? I, I think there is in California, right? That's trying to address the heat danger to farm workers specifically. Yeah, there's a number of things um, that I've thought of just listening to these last comments. So first, certainly protections for outdoor workers. Um, OSHA here in California does have some guidelines for outdoor workers, like when you hit certain temperature thresholds, there need to be uh, rest breaks, water breaks, shade, you know, all sorts of things like that. But what we don't really have yet and we are in dire need of is protections for indoor workers. So that could be people who work in factories or warehouses, maybe like an Amazon factory somewhere in the Inland Empire where the temperatures can get really, really hot. Um, And we don't yet have guidelines for those workers. So that's something that's really important. And then going back to the last question that you and Karen were just talking about, um, the governor did recently launch a, a $20 million heat campaign here in California, which is largely a public information campaign aimed at reaching some of those communities like farm worker communities um, and communicating in multiple languages just to spread the word about extreme heat and how dangerous it is and what the warning signs are. Um, So there are efforts underway, but certainly room for improvement. Wanted to say too, you know, one of our other colleagues at, at KQED, uh, Farida Jabala Romero, has been covering, you know, some of this, um, you know, heat-related worker protections as well, and has a, actually a story from um, just last week about uh, California Senator Alex Padilla um, announcing new legislation that would expedite rules to protect workers from uh, from higher temperatures. So just. If you're interested, look up some of uh, Farida's work and you can find it. Let's um, let's get to um, Arnold um, in Nevada City. Welcome, Arnold. Hey, thanks for having me on. I'm curious about uh, kind of some of the discussion earlier in the conversation about uh, heat-related deaths. And, and if you guys could comment more about human physiology with respect mm-hmm. to heat. You know, I think about even just my own body. In the springtime when it, it turns 60 degrees, I'm out there in shorts and it's wonderful and warm. In the fall, when it hits 60 degrees, I'm putting a coat on and, mm-hmm. and you know, the body adapts. And, and I'm just curious about uh, if, if there's anybody uh, on the show today that can comment about mm-hmm. what's actually happening in our bodies that adjust to heat and kind of what are the temperature range extremes that we can go to, right? You take somebody from Alaska and you put them in Phoenix and they're probably going to be right. dying and, and vice versa. So uh, just curious about how this happens in the body. Yeah, Arnold, it's a good point. And Jeff, uh, I'm, Goodell, I'm going to come to you on this one. I But I had this experience in Chennai in, in southern India, whereas I was walking around on this trip, you know, business trip, like going to meetings, I was like pouring sweat and everyone was kind of just going about their days. I mean, it's 100 degrees, it's like 100% humidity. And I it did make me wonder how maladapted I felt in that particular um, climate. 
So, Jeff, maybe talk to us a little bit about the human body's ability to adapt physiologically um, and, you know, wh what that means for us in this, you know, warming world. Yeah, something I looked into um, quite a bit for my book. Uh, and I'll just make two quick points about this. One is that, yes, you know, through a lot of research, scientists and physiologists have figured out that we we do have some ability to adapt to, you know, warmer climates in a, you know, short term, like it in over, over I think it maxes out after two months, there's some ad ad adaptation that goes into our um, circulatory system and the way our blood vessels dilate and things like mm -hmm. that. So mm -hmm. there is some difference, but it's also really important to underscore that, um, all humans are more or less the same. There's different vulnerabilities if you have heart conditions or things like that. But like, for example, during the slavery era, there was a lot of belief that, mm -hmm. you know, the workers in the fields, because they were from Africa in a hot place, they didn't suffer from the heat. Or here in Texas, there's a subcurrent of like people from Mexico who do fine in the heat. And and our bodies, the, the, the point is that our bodies are all the same. People have the same number of sweat glands, you know, their, their mm -hmm. circulatory system works in the same way. We all have, have, you know, dissipate heat by sweat. People who are in better shape do, do better than others and people who have stronger hearts and things like that. But there's not a kind of racial difference. And I, I directly asked one of the top experts in the world, like if you have grown up in the, if you've come from a hundred generations of families in the Philippines, are you much better adapted than I would be after I go there and spend six months there? And basically, mm -hmm. no, you're, we're the same. Mm -hmm. So there's not a sort of genetic adaptation to heat in that sense. Yeah, no, I definitely, um, thank you for, for pointing out that kind of quite, a quite ugly history. Appreciate that. Um, can I, can I add a little oh, sure. bit? Um, yeah. Just to add some thoughts to, to, mm -hmm. Jeff's comments. Um, I mean, we, we do also know that elderly people cannot sweat as effectively as as younger people and that kids are are also especially vulnerable because mm -hmm. their bodies are smaller. They can heat up faster because they have more surface area. And so we need to, you know, if you're a parent, you need to really take care of your kids. And if they're playing outside, kind of keep a close eye on them and make sure that they're not getting overheated. And then, you know, if we have elderly loved ones or neighbors um you know keep keep tabs on them during these big heat events too yeah you know um haley smith wanted to uh give you uh give you the last word here are what are you watching you know through the end of summertime here just as we're you know we've just experienced what you know might end up being the hottest month in 120,000 years uh what about next month Unfortunately, it's not looking much better. August is expected to be another really hot month. It's looking like July may have been the hottest absolute month ever, um, but we're waiting for the official numbers to come in on that. And 2024 is probably going to be even hotter. So it's a little bit of a trope at this point, but it's it's true. And it's worth reminding people that it feels really hot right now, but this may be the coolest summer for the rest of our lives. We've been talking about extreme heat with Haley Smith, reporter focusing on extreme weather with the Los Angeles Times. Jeff Goodell, author of The Heat Will Kill You First, Life and Death on a Scorched Planet. Karen McKinnon, assistant professor at UCLA Institute of the Environment and Sustainability. And Danielle Venton, science reporter with KQED News. This has been our collaboration with KQED Science Climate Fix. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.